Good morning. I didn't say that before. Let's bow our heads in prayer, just for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for that truth, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, we pray that you will speak to our hearts, give us life, nourish us, make us strong. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now I'm going to see if the technology works. Now, the groan wasn't too big. You may be aware that there is a referendum coming up. If this is the first time you've heard about it, I'm sorry to impart bad news. Um, And some people are really sure it's about being in. And some people are absolutely sure we must get out. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that honestly don't know, and a fair number of people who just don't care. So in, out, or shake it all about. That's (laughs) that's the referendum. Now, bear with me a moment. This is, this is not going to be a, a big political thing. People who talk about this, talk, what are the issues? And some people say it's economic. Will we be better off? And other people bash on about it's political. It's about who's in charge. And other people say it's about influence. Will we have more influence in or out? I'm not sure why it's so important that we have influence over people. It's all a bit nebulous to me, I must admit. Anyway, okay, let's ask a different question. Let's suppose we have a different kind of referendum. Kingdom of God, yes or no? Do we want this country to be 100% under the rule of God? Do we want our towns to be governed entirely according to the the rule of God? Do we want, as individuals, to be 100% living under the rule of God? How would you like to be mobilised to get out on the streets of Norwich, campaigning, vote in for the Kingdom of God? Now, of course, there will be issues. Some people say, well, it's an economic matter. Will we be better off? And there are different ways of approaching that. But one of the things we'd have to say is, well, actually, it's a whole different mindset about possessions and about wealth. And, you know, under most governments, uh, you pay your taxes, what you do with the rest is your business. But actually, in the kingdom of God, everything belongs to God. You're responsible to him for all the use of money. You give differently. You spend differently. It's a different mentality about possessions entirely. What about political? Who's in charge? Well, that's that's easy. God's in charge. You're not in charge. It's not about being in charge. Influence? Well, it's about his influence, not about our influence. Different mentality. Click. No negotiations. No compromise. No special conditions. Sounds a bit, bit of a chill, that, doesn't it? That's not going to warm the voters. <laughs> kind treatment, yes. Power to change, yes. Debt cancellation. Our debts to God are cancelled. It's a wonderful thing that so few people appreciate. Eternal life, yes. Those are your positive benefits. Sovereignty, no. <laughs> sovereignty, no. no. It's not about sovereignty. It really isn't. And and actually, by the way, we live in his world. The bodies we walk around in, the air we breathe, the water we drink, ultimately comes from him. He need not ask our consent. Very different to a decision about Europe or not. Go on, click. But would he win a referendum? No. No. 
Well, we know that, don't we? You would not win a referendum on that. We live in a world that rejects and has always rejected God. I mean, sometimes it's okay to do the God thing a bit. You know, it's okay going to church, but don't go too far. It's all right believing in God, but don't become one of those nutters, will you? God's all right in his place, in his little box, at a certain time of the, you know, of the week, and at, coming out at Christmas and that kind of thing. But being given over 100%, serving God, organising your whole life around God's will, what pleases God, serving him, putting him first, not yourself, that never goes down as all that popular. Never has done. So, we have these words of Jesus that he spoke uh, to, the, to his disciples, to the crowd around him. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In the ancient world, um, people longed to be considered blessed. And if you look through the, the New Testament, you'll see when somebody, one person is commending an offer, another, often they use this word blessed. And what blessed meant was that the, 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 the favour of God was visibly on you. It's not just about being happy. It meant you are a person favoured by God and we can see it. People's biggest daily concern in everyday life was their reputation and how they were perceived by their neighbours. And so much of what Jesus taught, so much of what's in the epistles, is about managing how we see ourselves, how the world sees us, how other people see us, and the, the fact that people will not uh, recognise what, what God counts as good. Blessed are you when people insult you. People long to be considered blessed, and Jesus was putting these things together. So if God's favour is on you, but people are insulting you, how, how does that work? How is that a good thing? That throws up a contradiction. Because people want to be blessed, but they, who wants to be insulted? If you walk down the street in, in, uh, late at night and some drunk you've never met hurls abuse across the street, it's distressing, it's annoying, but it, you, know, you get over it. If somebody you know well, if a family member, if a work colleague makes quiet, snide, sneering remarks and then denies saying them, that hurts a lot more. Insults. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Have you ever been in a situation where there have been rumours deliberately circulated by somebody against you? Accusations, innuendo, There's so little you can do about it. It is so frustrating. It can be so humiliating, so difficult to respond to. People said false things against Jesus. People insulted Jesus. Uh, often we think of persecution, we think of it primarily in terms of gross acts of violence that are going on in some parts of the world. But actually most of the daily experience of persecution then was very much relational. It was about people, it was about reputation, about what people said about you. Jesus said, blessed are you, God's favour rests on you when these things happen to you because of me. It wasn't a sort of masochistic, or oh, the more you suffer, the better it is. No, when you are so close to me that people say these things about you, then you are truly blessed. And how, what kind of evidence did he have for that? Well, first of all, they persecuted the prophets. And in that generation, at that time, they revered the prophets. The prophets were badly treated. If you're really walking God's way, you'll be badly treated. This is all 
examples and language that doesn't particularly resonate today because the prophets don't have the same status. We don't talk about being blessed. But we do understand something of the value of reputation. He was preparing people to go out into the world and say, we follow Jesus the crucified. And for us, that word crucified has become a religious word. It wasn't at the time. It really wasn't. There was a huge stigma to it. We follow Jesus the crucified. I'm sorry? You follow a convicted criminal? Oh, well, he was innocent. Oh, I see. You're going around saying the authorities carried out a a miscarriage of justice and you're siding against the authorities. It really didn't go down well, however you played it. And we we have difficulty connecting with the level of stigma that the cross carried. Let me put it this way. Come on, click. There we go. Whoops. I wonder if anybody here had their photo taken with Jimmy Savile. Two people in my church in, in Lancashire have. Those pictures are not on the wall anymore. Those pictures are no longer prized and shown because there is such a stigma attached to this guy. And nobody wants to be associated with him anymore. And if you say, oh, actually, he's not such a bad guy after all, that doesn't make it better. It gives you something of the, the feel of what it means to be associated with the crucified one. So I'll remove his picture. Rejection. Um, the prophets experienced rejection. Jesus experienced rejection. And we're used to the idea that there was rejection then. And we look... Um, at at the accounts we have in scripture we read historical stories and our minds are boggled at the things people went through we understand that there is persecution and rejection and all the rest of it out there in other places I work in the Muslim world and in the Muslim world it's really really tough to be a Christian it's really really tough to become a Christian we know that, that's out there I can't help feeling we haven't quite got a hold of the situation we are in now. We're experiencing it, but almost like we're expecting it to pass. It is becoming less and less respectable to follow Christ wholeheartedly in this country. There are more and more different accusations or or stigmas that get attached to being Christians, whether it's about tolerance or whether it's about hypocrisy or whether it's about equal opportunities or whether it's um, stories people carry and circulate or the way child sex abuse stories are handled, all the rest of it, it just accumulates. You're associated with those people. There's the rational argument and the scientific argument and all these things that just keep adding and all the the false accusations that get added, all the associations with what somebody else genuinely has done wrong but it sticks to you. It's getting less and less respectable to be a Christian. And there's part of us that thinks, well, we ought to be respected. We ought to be liked. People ought to appreciate what jolly good sorts we are. Jesus taught us that actually it's normal to follow in the paths of the prophets uh, and experience rejection. So what are we supposed to do about it? And I think what a lot of people don't realise is that this passage we had read is primarily about dealing with rejection. See, salt was highly valued. People, some people got paid. Their salary came in the form of salt. The word salary is derived from that. Uh, salt was really valued. But actually, salt's not very useful. You can't build anything with salt. You can't construct things with it. Its value is entirely in its taste. And if it doesn't have any taste, it has no value. Light. 
is always valued. We are so used to the flick of a switch, we don't realise how much. But if you live in a place with no electricity, you know how valued and how precious light is. And you notice it when you lose it. Um, and Jesus used these two things of salt and light that are so valued. And what he's saying is this. What is the temptation when you are suffering a loss of res- um, reputation, when you're being insulted, when people are saying untrue things about you, when it is embarrassing to follow me? One temptation is to blend in. Lose your distinctiveness. Salt that has no taste ceases to be of any use. It's only fit for being thrown out and trampled. Light. Wonderful stuff. How do you manage without it? But if your light is hidden, if you practice your faith in Christ behind closed doors, in private, what's the point of that? Light is to be out there and to be seen. These are the two temptations, to blend in, to be the same as everybody else, or to be different but keep it hidden. That's what Jesus is talking about in these two passages. The famous verse that follows, let your light shine, is in the context of, though people reject you. What does that mean? What does it look like in practice? I think of two friends I have in Chad. One of them is called Muhammad. And after being a Christian a few years, um, his father died, and Muhammad inherited uh, a little house. It was nothing very fancy, nothing very grand, but he inherited this house. And his sister came along and said, you have no right to that house. You became a Christian. You can't inherit. And she took him to court. And she went to the state court, um, the secular court, and they said, well, there's no basis in law for what you're saying. He keeps the house. But she didn't give up. She then went to the sultan's court. There's a parallel uh, legal system for local matters. And she went to the sultan's court, Islamic court, and the sultan said, no, you have no right to the house. Your sister will have the house. And Muhammad knew that he could go back to the civil court and have the decision overturned. But in the court, he said, my inheritance is in heaven, let her have the house. He, he spoke and he acted and he responded according to the way of Christ rather than in a worldly way. And I saw him about a year later and I said, uh, how are things going with your sister? Oh, my sister and I are getting on fine. I said, oh, right, no hard feelings. And he gave me a rueful smile. He said, she's living under my roof. She's sold the house. She's squandered the money. She's living with me now. That is... (laughs) A lot lot of people would never, ever forgive a family member who sued them like that. The practice of forgiveness. Salt and light. Oh, hang on, I'm not ready for that. Back. I said two friends. Another guy I refer to regularly as Andy. He came from a very proud, uh, very well-off family uh, with uh, strong traditions in, in the military and in, in business and stuff. He came to the Lord and for a while they were, were very good with him. They tried to win him back and then one day he came back to the house and all his possessions had been dumped in the street. And when you live in an honour-shame culture, to have your possessions dumped in the street for all the neighbours to see and you have to pick them up out of the dirt. A hugely humiliating experience for him. I think in this country, if I saw somebody throwing uh, a family member's possessions out the window, I would say, well, what's their problem? That's how we would tend to see it. But in most cultures, you assume the family is right and the individual is wrong. And uh, that deeply hurt him. But he continued to love and to serve his family and 
used whatever connections he had. And the main person working against him was his older brother. And three or four years later, his older brother was seriously ill and thought he would die. And he called Andy to his bedside. And they spent about a week together, watched the Jesus film together, and there was a reconciliation. But the... Andy did not just blend in. He did not lose his saltiness. He did not hide his light. And in the end, he won back the goodwill of his family. And gradually, he's making progress with the family, sharing Christ. I can't claim anybody's been converted yet. That's not really the point. The temptation is to blend in, become the same. The temptation is to keep our light behind closed doors. Jesus told us, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Peter echoed that in his epistle. Uh, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. I underlined accuse. Actually, every time we're accused, we need to listen to our critics and just check. I mean, that is part of the, the humility we have in Christ. We know, we know we're sinners. Let us always take whatever criticism comes our way seriously, examine it before the Lord, and let's not defend anything that shouldn't be defended. Jesus is, is the stone that was rejected. We are following somebody who was rejected. And he has become the capstone. He's become the important one. Why follow somebody who's rejected? Because salvation is found in no one else. It's a very exclusive, and for those who don't believe, offensive truth. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which is given to men uh, by which we must be saved. Back then, think about it. Why did people risk scorn, mockery, contempt, rejection, loss, and violence? Why did they risk all that? Why? Nobody was under any obligation to take on so much grief. Well, I I can start the list, because it's true. I mean, how the Christian movement ever got going if it wasn't true, I don't know. If they didn't know Jesus was amongst them, I don't know how it could ever have got going. There were so many things set against them. Glory, the promise of glory. You may lose the reputation of men, but you seek glory from the Lord. Love, being loved living in love, healing, restoration, new life, hope, eternal life, and you can probably add your own things. Kingdom of God is forever. Jesus has already placed his cross. Let us be glad to be associated with him. Amen?